KYW Original Podcasts. This is KYW In-Depth. My name is Matt Leon. So as a result of doing these KYW In-Depth podcasts, I've learned a lot about the history of Philadelphia, and it's been fun to learn about how we got to the city we enjoy today. And as we live through the COVID-19 pandemic, one of the really interesting things is how much of the innovation and the development in the city has come actually in response to public health crises. Wanted to drill down on this concept, and to do so, I reached out to Harris Steinberg, Executive Director of the Lindy Institute for Urban Innovation at Drexel University. We had a really fascinating conversation. Check it out. So let's start at the beginning, kind of the the development of the city itself in Philadelphia. And uh, this did not happen uh, out of a vacuum. There was a very specific goal in mind for a lot of the development of the early city, correct? Yeah. uh, William Penn, the proprietor, as he was known at the time, who essentially ruled over Philadelphia as a semi-king, was given the grant by... Uh, by the Royal Crown, had a vision for Philadelphia. Uh, Penn was a active Quaker. He had sort of dissented uh, kind of from the aristocratic ranks that he was brought up in and saw the impact of both racial prejudice, but also um, kind of religious prejudice and wanted to create a colony that was open to everybody. So from the get-go, this was not just for Puritans. It was not just for a certain subsect of British society. This was seen as an open and free society where you could have uh, freedom of speech, religion, really predica- predated in many ways. The, uh, uh, his Charter of Privileges predated the Bill of Rights and in many ways is a template for it. So from a philosophical, political and policy perspective, it too was a, a well thought through kind of exercise or experiment. In terms of physical planning, he manifested that in terms of the plan of the city of Philadelphia in many ways as a utopian city plan. If you think of contemporaneous planning or non-planning of cities, Boston is essentially, particularly the older part of Boston, is a series of uh, cow paths and Indian trails that have sort of become streets. You think of lower Manhattan before the uh, the plan of Manhattan, which went into effect in 1815, Wall Street and those areas are the same. Lots of collision of different streets and spaces that were not purposely planned. The, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, so Philadelphia became uh, the model for really the, the American city. The grid that we see here in Philadelphia was ultimately transplanted across the country, and you can see its roots here in Philadelphia. The genesis of that plan came from, as we've talked about earlier, a response to at least physically, the Great Fire of London in in, uh, 1666, where a predominantly wooden city kind of burned very quickly, much like Chicago and and the Great Fire. And in the rebuilding of the city, there was lots of thinking and talking about how can we create a fireproof model? The Brick Row House kind of became one of those. Uh, And Philly's Row House is very similar to the London model. If you kind of uh, can think about the difference between Paris and London, Paris has eight-story apartment blocks throughout the whole city. London is essentially a a row house or or, or a row house town like Philly. Amsterdam, the same. At the same time, Penn began to think about the nature of public spaces. And this was also a radical departure kind of from his time. One, One impact of the fire that was noticed by Penn and his contemporaries is that spaces outside the old walled city 
were, became areas of refuge in terms of uh, being able to flee the fire. And they were the Moore Fields, which were just north of the old city, kind of in the current banking district, of, uh, north of the current banking district of London. So when Penn was laying out his city and with his surveyor, Thomas Holm, what became the five squares were modeled on the Moore Fields of London. So again, you have this idea about fireproof material, you have an idea about public space and its uses in, a, in an era that was essentially uh, about kind of royal privilege, all parks and squares and open spaces in London were for gentry and the aristocratic set, not for you and me. But Penn was really bent on creating a city that was a populist city. And then you have the grid itself, which is a a kind of non-hierarchical grid of streets that are punctuated by public spaces that were designed for light and air. I mean, right now we have congestion down in downtown Philadelphia, but in the 17th century, those were wide streets. Broad Street itself, 100 foot from, from uh, building face to building face, still remains a very large street in the city of Philadelphia. So you had light and air that, were, that was guaranteed through this egalitarian grid of, of streets. You had initially very large houses and, and on two or three acre plots with, with, in his vision, orchards within the, the center city. Of course, that's not how it was ultimately developed. But the, the vision was for a almost a suburban town uh, by kind of our standards today, not for a city, but the template for the American city was kind of laid down in 1681, 1682, when Penn kind of brought these ideas to Philadelphia. Do we know how they were regarded at times? Were these looked at as radical, this will never work, this is crazy, you only do it this way? Or how was it received uh, by the general public and by other people? Great question. We know that from the get-go, people ignored the grid. I mean, we had the uh, we have the overarching grid of streets, and we still use that today in terms of you know chestnut, locust, walnut, and, and the numbers. But the actual development of Philadelphia clustered very tightly around the port of Philadelphia, which was on the Delaware. So rather than this even distribution of houses and, and cultural and, and civic spaces across the city, for the first 100 plus years, the city was really very tightly developed along the Delaware with Penn's grid being chopped up into lots of different smaller parcels for the economics of the time. You could, you could get a lot more in there. You could sell land. You could really sort of leverage the grid in a way that Penn hadn't considered. His idea, again, being an aristocrat from London, from England, was that the county seats were really much more important to the landed gentry than the city. So for him, he wanted to kind of sell uh, big pieces of land out in the countryside to, the, to rich English men. And then they got a bonus lot in the city. That's how he actually began to kind of populate his city. Once Philadelphia began to become established, and as I said, the Port of Philadelphia being a deep port connected to very rich resources in the hinterland, you can think of Lancaster and the farming community, the development of the actual city itself clustered very densely around the the port, and that was not Penn's vision at all. So you can say in many ways, the market spoke, (laughs) and it said, hey, we're going to do what we're going to do. But yet, through all of that, the streets we walk today are very much Penn's plan. The, the squares that we that we love are Penn's squares. So I think in, in some ways it's a win-win. Uh, Penn, in many ways, kind of won the day in terms of the overall shape of the city. But successive generations have embellished it, developed it, created the city that we see today. The specific idea of designing a city 
in response to the Great Fire in London. That kind of narrowing in on that concept, do we know how that was? Did people think that was overreaction? Was it looked at as, oh, well, that makes sense? Do we have any idea how that was, was looked at at that time? I, I personally don't know the answer to that. I, don't, I have not read anything that says that there was. That doesn't mean that there wasn't. But again, because Penn had virtual control over anything that went on within his colony because of the, the grant that he was given by the crown, I don't know if, if that was really an issue. I think you know, Penn made very few trips to Philadelphia. There were uh, essentially twice that he sort of stayed here for any extended periods of time. And there were, you know, struggles with the Native Americans, with Western Europeans who had been here before him. I mean, there were there were a lot of issues that had to be dealt with that were completely unconsidered in terms of kind of the utopian plan that he created, which was really a vision for a, a religious colony in the colonies. But again, because of the religious freedom, the freedom of speech, the location of Philadelphia, the safe and protected harbor, Philly became the largest city in the English-speaking world, second to London by the time of the American Revolution. Now, that, by our standards, is still a small city. It's you know, about 30,000 people. But the, the conditions were ripe for kind of the, really the explosion of Philadelphia as a place of innovation and experimentation in many ways because of the seeds that Penn planted. So let's fast forward now about a century. Uh, we've done a lot of podcasts that have referenced or talked directly about the yellow fever epidemic in 1793. And obviously that was the terrible one, not that there were any good ones, but there were a lot of them. But 1793 really stands out. And there's kind of a, a response in what we see today in the city. It was kind of in response with regards to the water system in Philadelphia to the yellow fever epidemic, correct? Yeah. And what is so remarkable about that response is that it's this incredible fusion of kind of engineering uh, and kind of civic architecture, for lack of a better word. I mean, we created initially the what became the Fairmount Waterworks, which was the, the idea at the time was, the thought at the time was that uh, the yellow fever epidemic was waterborne. Turned out not to be, but as a result, uh, we created the first municipal water supply system in the country. So the, the leaders of Philadelphia took seriously the pandemic or epidemic, they uh, focused on, on a response that they felt was going to kind of have civic value, but it was more than just pure engineering. Anyone who has been to the Fairmount Waterworks or who has driven on Kelly Drive or, or seen it from ac- across the Schuylkill, this is a, a significant piece of work of architecture wherein uh, water was pumped up from the Schuylkill up to the uh, reservoir, which is the top Fairmount, which was the, the hill that now hosts the art museum, and then gravity fed down to the city itself. This was um, kind of the culmination of previous decades of experimentation with pumping water from the Schuylkill to Center Square, which is where there was a a beautiful pump house designed by Benjamin Latrobe that sits on on the site that uh, City Hall now sits. So we were trying to figure this out for a while. How do you supply water to uh, the city? It was really about public health as much as anything. But the response to this day really underscores the, the relationship between public health and civic life. You created not only the Fairmount Waterworks, but this, this became the, the seed for ultimately the creation of Fairmount Park, which was expanded after the consolidation of Philadelphia and the surrounding townships in 1854 to become the 4,000-acre the watershed park that we see today, which is East and West Park and the Wissahickon 
which still provides water to more than a million people, a million Philadelphians today. So kind of once again, how radical was this? How was this perceived at the time? Obviously, I would think this is really ahead of its time as far as its thinking. Definitely radical. And, uh, you know, you had folks like uh, Charles Dickens coming to see this. You had, uh, this was um, second to Niagara Falls, the, uh, the, the Fairmount Waterworks and, uh, and its system was the most visited uh, tourist site in the United States at the time. So, yes, it was significant. It was, it was copied, uh, nothing exactly like ours, but um, it was viewed as a, as a major improvement in kind of civic life and a, a source of pride to Philadelphians. So those are two ma- major ways that we see the kind of the cause and effect in the development of Philadelphia. And we were talking before we started, you know, as you kind of go forward on the timeline, uh, you see others. And you mentioned a, a response in Philadelphia to the Triangle Fire, early 20th century that happened in New York. But we saw a response here. Sure. You begin to see the development of building codes and um, oversight in terms of how we not only construct buildings in terms of materials, but light and air and fireproofing. Some of the same components of the conversation we had from William Penn's day clearly were some of the drivers of the modernization of of Philadelphia in in the early 20th century. At the same time, you had organizations like the Fairmount Park Art Association, which is now called called the Association for Public Art, which was thinking about how you develop ultimately what became the Benjamin Franklin Parkway. So you had a a choked, dirty industrial city with uh, the Baldwin Locomotive Works right up there. It's by Spring Garden and Callow Hill. And the idea, again, we go back to the Fairmount Waterworks and the dam or the reservoir on top and the gravity feed across the down to City Hall. Uh, the idea became to how do we how do we create that that diagonal? It's no longer serving as the main water supply for the city, but it becomes now the entrance to the park and the connection between kind of the dense industrial city and the healthy uh, climbs of, of Fairmount Park. So there there are a number of different forces at play as we get to the to the latter part of the 19th century, early 20th century, from kind of zoning to city planning to kind of long-term visioning around the relationship between parks and public space and and the public uh, that also begin to push the city kind of in new directions. The creation of the Benjamin Franklin Parkway, arguably one of the most beautiful boulevards in the world, is a direct outgrowth of that type of thinking in terms of uh, the impact of industrialization. So then you mentioned coming out of World War II, we have more events that help lead us to, to where we are today. Give us some detail into that. After the Depression and after World War II, there's federal money that starts to flow into the city in terms of urban revitalization. And the head of the planning commission at the time was Ed Bacon, a very famous Philadelphia, famous in part because of his son, Kevin, but, but famous in his day. Uh, he was arguably the leading city planner of his day. He uh, graced the cover of Time magazine in 1964 with the revitalization of Society Hill. Philadelphia was seen as a leader uh, you know, in retrospect, it's difficult necessarily not to see some of the, the negative parts of the of the redevelopment era. But you have uh, an area like Society Hill that was selectively regenerated, not just leveled and rebuilt. Yes, there was um, there were African American communities and others that were relocated. So it's it's got it's a checkered history, but it was seen at the time as a way to remake the city without completely leveling it. 
he took what was a, a very dirty and kind of downtrodden food distribution center, which was right there at Dock Street at the, at the, at the waterfront at Delaware Avenue, and relocated it down near where the stadiums are now. And that helped to create then the revitalization of Society Hill, Old City, the creation of Independence Mall. All of these were uh, struggling with how do you keep a city current, fresh, and vital while there's the flight to the suburbs that's beginning because of the rise of the automobile age, of the interstate, redlining, all sorts of policies that were, that were forcing the city to con- confront the modern age. And um, Bacon and his team kind of looked at it as, as, as an opportunity to kind of rethink Philadelphia, not to completely reshape it, but to do it in a way that was uh, more progressive than other uh, cities were doing at the same time. And as we talked today in a previous discussion, we kind of talked about the effect this pandemic is going to have on the city. Since we've talked last time, which was a couple months ago, relatively early in in this situation, have you seen things that you think could prove to be inflection points now, maybe in regards to the pandemic or other situations going forward? Well, I think we're still in pretty much in crisis management mode. I mean, the, since we spoke, the, the, the murder of George Floyd and the civil unrest has swept the country, uh, has kind of just added yet another significant aspect to, the, to what we're struggling with. So it's not just, and I say just a pandemic, but there is a, a kind of a radical rethinking of our responsibility to equity, to inclusion, to um, repairing the original sins of, of uh, the United States, which is slavery. Again, I think we are still very much in crisis management mode. <clears throat> and I've not seen, there's been some shoots of sort of, a, of ideas that are beginning to kind of percolate, particularly in the physical planning world, but there's not, not a lot of radical rethinking of uh, kind of public space, for instance. That said, some of the experiments that we're seeing both in Philadelphia and in other cities around the country and the world kind of have to do with streets, and shutting down streets for play areas, making kind of connections. I forget which city it was, it has about 70 miles of streets that they've dedicated to bike lanes. So I think one of the things we talked about early on was that we saw that, and we knew this kind of going into it, but it became highlighted during the pandemic, that public space is not equitably distributed across the city, right? So unlike in Penn's plan, where there clearly was one square for each quadrant of the city, as Philadelphia developed, as the dense industrial center of the city, you just have to go through North Philly to be reminded of that, most of the public space was in Fairmont Park, at least the larger holdings. It's not to say that there aren't parks and recreation spaces dotted throughout the city, but there are 200,000 people who do not have access within a 10-minute walk to a public space. Uh, that's pretty significant. That's a small city. And I think that became uh, acutely uh, kind of recognized during the pandemic. So one of the things that I'd like to think about is how we can rectify that in terms of the connective tissue that we can build to, to create connections between those neighborhoods and the great park system that we've inherited. Uh, a project that I worked on in 2011, 2012 for the uh, Commissioner of Parks and Recreation, Mike DeBerardinas, asked the question of how can we add 500 acres of new park space to the city by 2015? He was responding to one of the planks of Mayor Nutter's sustainability plan, which called for that from, a, from an equity perspective. How could we kind of meet the needs of those Philadelphians who don't have access to public space? And so we looked at 
at existing schoolyards that could be turned into green spaces. We looked at existing recreation centers that could be made more green. And then we thought about how could we connect all of these areas. And there's over 70 miles of underutilized or abandoned rail lines and rail beds in Philadelphia that actually could become a connective system for those parks. So those are the kind of things that we're not yet really kind of talking about, but are very much, I think, consistent with what we learned during the early stages of the pandemic and what we know now is important in terms of equity in public space. Modern day, you were pointing out to me a couple of policies that Philadelphia in response to problems has been a little bit ahead of the curve, if not a lot ahead of the curve, kind of give us uh, break these down for us. Let's kind of start with uh, how Philadelphia deals with rainwater, stuff like that. So I think two examples where Philadelphia has really shown national leadership in terms of uh, kind of the relationship between health and public space today are the response by the Philadelphia Water Department to the uh, the EPA's requirement that we manage storm and sewer outflow into rivers and big storm events. And the other has to do with our rebuilding of our parks and recreation and kind of civic infrastructure in relationship to uh, the sweetened beverage tax. So I'll, I'll hit the, uh, the storm order first. The Environmental Protection Agency has been working with mostly large uh, post-industrial cities coming up with ways to manage the pollution in their rivers that, 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 are, that are impacted by large storm events where the combined sewer and, and, uh, and storm systems just can't handle uh, the volume. And then at those times, you would get typically uh, kind of raw sewage being dumped into rivers. Uh, that's a no-no. And the, we had to figure out how to kind of manage that. The contemporary conventional wisdom at the time was that you just put in more pipes, that you put in more what we call gray infrastructure or hard systems to deal with capacity as well as treatment. Philadelphia took a different tack. And under the leadership of a guy named Howard Newkrug at the Philadelphia Water Department, came up with and ultimately sold to the EPA uh, a green infrastructure system. Uh, green infrastructure meaning could we use rain gardens and and, and uh, green roofs and other forms of natural systems to actually slow the water down before it hit the combined system. And, and if we could distribute that across the entire city, managing macadam and parking lots as well as other uh, surfaces that would just sheet the water off into, into the storm system, could that actually give us enough time to slowly release the, the, the water into, into the river without it being filled with effluent. So we're doing that now. That was uh, approved by the EPA about 10 years ago. And it's not an easy system to necessarily get up and running because it depends on all of us to actually do our part. It's not just the uh, city government putting in big pipes underground, but it is a landmark uh, moment, I think, in terms of stormwater management and city planning that is unheralded. We don't talk a lot about that, but it's another instance where Philadelphia within this idea about water, health, and city planning kind of is leading around the country and around the world. And then the soda tax. And the soda tax. So uh, Mayor Kenny, when he came into office, was looking for a way to improve our parks and recreation system and refurbish it, essentially, uh, improve our libraries as civic hubs, and also provide 
uh, kind of funding for, for pre-K programs. And so he was interested in seeing if we could, again, tie public health objectives to the refurbishment of our, of our civic infrastructure. And he was successful, as we all know, in creating what we call a sweetened beverage tax or colloquially as the, as the soda tax that would help fund uh, kind of this refurbishment. Now, the tax was challenged for a while. The beverage industry was not happy with it. It ultimately passed the courts and, and, and it's been implemented. And it, we're beginning to see plans to kind of refurbish rec centers, parks and neighborhoods, libraries as, as kind of civic centers in a way that begins to address the issue of equity. Those parts of the city that are not adjacent to Fairmount Park or have connections to the, to the large swaths of, of parkland or riverfronts. And it's yet again, I think, another um, moment where Philadelphia is taking the lead on connecting health, planning, and, and the public good in a way that uh, I think is admirable. And you also had mentioned, aside from the pandemic, but as a current inflection point, the Philadelphia Energy Solutions. Of course, we had that terrible explosion but you could see that as a, I don't know if pivot points, the, but we could see something that we look back on in direct response to that. Absolutely. I think um, we talked about this last time. I did a, had some students who were working on it over the, the last term at Drexel. And then the Lindy Institute itself was working with the Clean Air Council last fall and March on a kind of preliminary visioning process for those 1,400 acres. Uh, I want to remind the listeners that at 1,400 acres, the Philadelphia, what is now the Hill Coast parcel, but the former Philadelphia Energy Solutions site, is larger than Center City, Philadelphia. So Penn's plan is 1,200 acres. Uh, this site on the lower Delaware, which is very hard, uh, Schuylkill, excuse me, which is very hard for us to mentally get a picture of because you, you, you drive around it, you poke kind of your nose into it, you rub up against it, but there's absolutely no way you can sort of imagine what this thing looks like. It's vast. It can hold lots of different things in the future. And my hope is that, uh, particularly along the water's edge, that it really becomes an opportunity for us in Philadelphia to kind of add to our, our kind of uh, network of park spaces along the riverfronts, connected to those parts of the city, particularly the southwest, uh, that are woefully underserved by, by public space. Uh, help it help us address climate change, sea level rise. There's a, there's a wide variety, I think, of uses that those, um, those acres could be put into as well as a development of which there could be a significant amount, much beyond the kind of logistics hub, which is currently planned for by Hilco. Hilco has now taken over the reins. I know they have some staff on the ground kind of on the site. Uh, they're, they're thinking, I think, long term, but I just don't know how visionary yet they're thinking in terms of the, the potential for that site. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. 